Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin, and I'm joined here today by Noah. Hey. Hey, Noah. Uh, we are missing Alex on this episode. Uh, he won't be able to join us, but we do have a returning guest in his stead. We are very happy to have Aaron back on the podcast. Huzzah! Hey, Aaron. Huzzah, gentlemen. It's good to be back, even if briefly. <laughs> Well, we are talking about The Irishman. I don't know how brief it'll be today. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's a lot to talk about here. Listeners will remember Aaron from our, uh, well, I, I guess it was less a review of Alien Covenant than it was kind of a collective sort of take on the Alien franchise in general. Certainly one of our livelier conversations, I would say. Uh, yeah, no, I, if I recall that conversation, which which I do... Uh, I think we had very divergent opinions on Alien Covenant. Um, yes. Aliens is wonderful. Alien is great. And the other ones are the other they ones. Exist. So they exist. <laughs> well, yes, we definitely had very, we had diff- we had differing opinions on, on some of those movies. But uh, this episode is going to be a little bit different than that franchise. We're actually going to be discussing The Irishman, the latest film from Martin Scorsese. This was released in somewhat limited release in theaters, but it is also on Netflix right now. But yeah, this is a three and a half hour epic, gangster epic, which is something that Scorsese is known for. Uh, And we'll be discussing our thoughts on that. And uh, as we do on this podcast, we also tend to focus on a bigger topic related to the movie or some of the creative forces involved that movie in some way. So uh, using the whole Marvel versus Scorsese debate, which has been just taking over the Internet over the last few months. And has been just lovely and not grating at all. (laughs) Yes, it's filled with original ideas and positions just throughout. Yes. And has been covered by just so few outlets at this point. But in any case, we're actually going to use that as a jumping off point uh, to a bigger question, which is what we think about filmmakers and their opinions on either other filmmakers or other films that are not their own. Because I think that's an interesting thing to discuss. I think it's been as artists that we really respect you know, there's always the question like, well, do we respect their opinion on art? Even if we even if we do respect their their art itself, do we necessarily respect their opinions on art? So I think that would be and that's that's going to be what we discuss later on in the show. Uh, but to get things started, we'll start off with our full disclosure segment in which we talk about, uh, you know, recent or relatively recent media that we've been consuming. I'm going to break present a little bit, and I'm going to go first this time, and I'm going to talk about something I saw because I've, like, I have been watching a lot of recent movies lately, but nothing that's really impressed me, at least not on the level of something like, uh, say, Parasite, <laughs> which, you know, was probably, is probably still at this point my favorite film of the year. So instead, I'm going to talk about something a little bit different. I'm going to talk about uh, Great Performances, which is a series that runs on PBS. This is a series that tends to focus on theatrical productions of some kind, whether it's music or live theater. 
um, because recently they just had the public theater's adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing, which was part of the Shakespeare in the Park series in New York City and was directed by Kenny Leon, who has been a very venerated theater director and has done quite a bit of August Wilson. That's kind of how I first uh, became familiar with him. Uh, he did a Tony-winning version of Raisin in the Sun lately, and he's the director here. He's working with an all-black cast on this uh, Shakespeare play, which I think is maybe, honestly, just if I think about it, I think this is the play of Shakespeare's that I have seen the most, both in live performances and in uh, screen adaptations. And I think this is just, to me, it's just proof of why Shakespeare has lasted as long as he has, in that I have seen this play so many times, and yet you still see different choices, in some cases, radically different choices that are being made here, but that still feel valid to the text. And I think it's just an indication of how rich the text is. You know, I think when you've seen this enough, you're, you're like waiting for certain moments to see how they're going to do it. In this play in particular, if you, for those who don't know, it largely revolves around this contentious, but, but also very passionate <laughs> growing relationship between two characters, Beatrice and Benedict, two people who claim that like marriage is not for them. And due to the sort of pushing and urging of other people, uh, their friends and some of their family, uh, they end up falling in love with one another. And there's a whole thing in this, in the play, where in, in one case Beatrice, in another case Benedict, they are, they are meant to feel like they are undiscovered by people who are discussing the two of them. And in both cases, they're trying to hide themselves so that they're not seen by the people, not realizing the people who are, of course, are the focus at that point, are actually aware that. Beatrice or Benedict are actually right there and they want them to overhear mm. what they're saying. I think that's one of my favorite constructs when Shakespeare does that because he does that a lot. Yes. And it's really fun here. And because they're working with the, this is like a, an open air theater, you actually have the actors <laughs> not just hiding on stage, but at one point actually hiding in the audience. <laughs> So so at one point you have um, Danielle Brooks, who uh, people may know from Orange is the New Black, who plays Beatrice here. She's like hiding like she's like like at one point she's actually like going like in between aisles of the of the audience and like <laughs> telling me to like move along so that she can like so that she can find a place to hide. Um, it's very funny and it really works because it just kind of shows how how desperate uh, how comically desperate she is to avail herself of the people on stage. There are some actors who you may not recognize. Some of them are stage uh, veterans at this point. There are others who you may recognize from like, I certainly recognized a few just from television. There's an actor named uh, Eric LeRae Harvey, who is someone that I knew from Boardwalk Empire, who is here playing a dual role as Antonio, but also as Virgis, who of course is Dogberry's, uh, you know, sort of partner in crime. <laughs> His uh, technically sec second in command, I guess you'd say. And it's very entertaining because he gets to do a lot of things. He's just really, he's, he's a very like physically imposing actor. So to see him play these two roles where like one, he's playing like a frail old man and another one where he's playing this like just total goofball is just really entertaining because I'm like, man, he just he hasn't really had that opportunity to play those kinds of characters. And that's a really great thing about theater is I think it 
sometimes you'll, you'll see a lot of like character actors who are known for doing one thing and then you'll see them in some theatrical production and just see like the whole range of things that they can do overall i think this is a really this is a really fun production there's a lot of music in it and quite like a variety of music you've got rap and hip-hop you've got like rhythm and blues uh, you got like a really great rendition of America the Beautiful that Danielle Brooks sings in the beginning of this. So it's very, and it's very tuned into now. There's, it takes place in, they don't like specify, but like it seems to take place in, uh, in the South. Uh, there's a, there's a sign that says Abrams 2020 <laughs> on the, on like the side of this house. It's just fascinating to see this play, which comes from so long ago now, that it still has its relevancy in today. And it's, and it's really nice to see. And it's just, I love seeing new interpretations. I think that's why, uh, I think that's part of why it's lasted so long. Okay, so why don't we go to you, Noah? What have you been watching lately? Uh, Netflix released the third season of The Dragon Prince, mm. which is mm. one of Netflix's animated original series. And um, that series got my attention because one of the co-creators and and the executive producer of the show were also people who did a lot of the head writing uh, and individual episode directing for The Last Airbender. Mm -hmm. And it's a show that very much is, or at least tries to be, in a similar vein to Avatar of creating its own fantasy adventure setting with little bits of stuff clearly taken from um, anime or from uh, other fantasy stories but trying to combine them in new ways. My feelings have gone back and forth a bit in the show. Have either of you guys seen the show yet? I uh, finished watching the third season a couple of days ago. So uh... Okay. There's a lot that I like. It's not uh, hand-drawn animation. There's some hand-drawn um, backgrounds, but the animation is mostly um, computer-generated, and it's, it's different. There's a lot of great designs. A lot of the concept art, a lot of the designs of the characters... Uh, and of the creatures in the world are pretty stunning. And I do think the animation in terms of quality like went up a notch in the recent third season. Mm -hmm. But it is different. The characters move differently, uh, which works sometimes for me. And sometimes I found it a little bit um, jumpy, especially in the first season. I read recently like they actually did try to address that in the second and third season. So in terms of the animation itself... I feel like the show is sort of it functions more as like a step between older animation styles and newer animation styles. But there is still a lot to like there. I feel like the biggest problem with the animation is that this is partly to be expected because two of its main creators are from the last Airbender team. It very much tries to have that same vibe of there is like there is a lore here. There is a deep history um, to this fantasy world. There is a lot of like serious, profound stuff that is going on and is worked into the character arcs, but it also tries to have a lot of lighthearted moments uh, and also include a lot of just really cheesy humor, which Avatar did as well. But I felt that Avatar was able to transition from serious to silly and back again a lot easier because with hand-drawn animation, you just have more fluidity in how you can present the characters and present the world. And it fits a little bit better if you have, you know, one scene followed by, you know, characters making really weird uh, Looney Tunes faces in the next and the moments in the show where it goes for that kind of like cheesy humor some of which is funny some of which falls flat but like you know that's the nature of the beast uh, it just looks and feels a little bit off and they're definitely among the weakest parts of the show but on the other hand I still like 
I like a lot of what's going on in the story because in general, I think it's a really good uh, basic fantasy concept. The basic concept is the world is essentially split into like a human half and an elven half. And the elves are innately magical creatures and all the animals from their world are innately magical and they're, and they live and work closely with the dragons who are also magical. And the humans on the other hand are not magic. Humans do not have magic of their own or at least so it so it appears and therefore humans uh sought ways to take magic from magical creatures to wield it for their own ends which basically means you know killing these magical creatures and that has sparked a apparently generations long conflict between the humans on one side and the elves on the dragon and the dragons in the other and the opening of the show is a very young elvish assassin fails in a mission to in her part of a mission to kill one of the human kings but over the course of that she meets the two sons of that king the two human sons and they make a discovery that if it came out could potentially end this whole conflict and then they they decide to go on a journey together and try to forge an unlikely friendship uh, to bring an end to this conflict. So that's that's the basic plot synopsis that launches the show. And the way it's built up, a lot of the, 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 the facets of the world and how magic work are all really interesting and are all really unique. Uh, and so as someone who just likes a good fantasy concept, that does appeal to me. And what's also really, really good about the show, and I think one of the big drivers for the fact that the show does have a solid fandom, is that it is a very, very, like almost aggressively inclusive show. And in that sense, it is also kind of following in the in the trail of The Last Airbender, where, you know, the there was a lot of aspects of The Last Airbender that were focused on gender equality and female empowerment. And also pretty much all of the people like the, the like skin tones for the characters were were more lighter than dark. But all of the characters and nations were very clearly not western european inspired and the show is a bit groundbreaking in that sense uh plus the follow-up show legend of korra was groundbreaking in that it ended with canonically the two main women characters coming together either coming out as lesbians or bisexual although they didn't go quite as explicit with it as they wanted to because nickelodeon said no we won't do that <laughs> you can tell that those shackles are off for this show because uh well first on the one hand all of the human kingdoms are very clearly racially mixed like you have the full each kingdom has like the full spectrum of skin tones um, within mm -hmm. it, and as do the elves as well. And you have like the main king is black, and then he has an adopted white son, and then his own blood son, who is uh, clearly half or, or not entirely black in, in air quotes, um, because we find we learn that his uh, mother had white skin. So the two main human characters are adopted brothers, one of whom is white, and one of whom is of what what we would call mixed race but i mean how race is defined in this world is not clearly set up but at least in a racial sense it is very clearly not our world um like there is no racial hierarchy in play within the human world uh and also homosexuality is something that in this world is apparently and it's not announced it's just you there it's introduced at, at one point when we find out that one of the kingdoms was ruled by two queens um, who openly ruled the kingdom together. And then when they died in a battle before the show started, their daughter took over ruling the kingdom. And they have been, and since then there have been a couple of like openly homosexual couples that have appeared in the show and kit like openly kissed. 
which was like that was where Nickelodeon drew the line with the Avatar and Legend of Korra creators about four, three or four years ago. I think 2014, I want to say. Yeah, something like that. On top of that, there is like even in terms of physical disabilities, the show is inclusive as well, because one of the top human generals who was also established as being one of the most hard ass fighters in the show is mute and can only communicate through sign language. And she has an interpreter who's always at her side to relay her orders to her soldiers. So there's a lot of groundbreaking stuff in that sense that no major anime, or at least no major American animated show has ever done. And that's also something that I really, really like about the show. And I'm, I'm hoping that it continues. And now comes the caveat. Uh, I just found out myself uh, earlier today when I was researching for the show uh, one of the main creators, Aaron Ayaz, who is also one of the the head writer and episode directors for The Last Airbender, three weeks ago, uh, a whole bunch of allegations of him being super misogynistic came out. And his response so far has been not good. So it's an open question right now whether or not that's going to impact like him leaving the animation company or staying at the animation company that he founded to make this show. Uh, and whether or not the show will continue at all and whether or not it's, you know, morally right to support the show. So I'm feeling a little bit torn about that because the show itself is very clearly inclusive in ways that we need. But yeah, I there's a couple of things that I want to engage with um, just that that you discussed. Uh, first, hmm. I'll, I'll talk about the the artistic component. And then I, I do think it's worth discussing the Aaron Ayaz discussion. But starting artistically, I, it is a it is a remarkably inclusive show. When I watch it, I, I really enjoy it. I want to like it a bit more than I do, uh, mm. in part because mm. it's it does it, the inclusivity is very positive. You know, uh, it's important to have representation. The issue I have is I don't get enough of a sense that the different human kingdoms are different enough from each other. That's, that that's, that's one been of the... so far. That's been very vague. Like how the human kingdoms function. Yeah, like Catalus is the name of the kingdom. Is is the uh, at least in the third season they make it clear is the at, at least the military power of yeah of, of the human yeah of the human kingdoms. But there's no there's no clear structure to how like the politics works. Right, and I, but I but I but I I think it goes a little bit deeper than that because in the in the last Airbender, which is a masterpiece, each of the different regions, or each of the different nations, uh, you know, water nation, air air nation, uh, fire nation, they were distinct or Earth kingdoms. They were like they were distinct people, and and, and even within the Earth kingdom, uh, depending on where they were in the Earth kingdom. Uh, there were differences uh, in the yeah. clothing and in the that was a level of world building that I loved in in Last Airbender. I, at least uh, I wish I could see more of here. Mm. You know, it's it's uh, I feel like too many of the kingdoms are you know just vaguely Western European, even though they do have a black king. You have the two um, uh, the two queens of 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 that one king of that one kingdom. I'm not saying that we need, you know, a dissertation on the political structures of, <laughs> of the world, right? Like, obviously, you know, it's a show for kids. We don't need, uh, you know, the, the constitutional structure of Catullus. We don't, we don't necessarily need that. I, because Zadia, the, the elf realm, is so lovingly rendered. Like, it's very clear 
that all of the different parts of Zadia are very different. I, mm. I wish a little bit that the humans got that same kind of um, attention. Uh, and on to the Aaron, the Aaron issue, the Aaron Ahaz issue. A Ahaz, as in not you, Aaron. The different Aaron. No, no, the yes. no, 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 a different Aaron. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean that's always the eternal dilemma, right? It's the artist or the art. I mean, there's a, you know, that's a, this is a problem that comes up with like Michael Jackson or R. Kelly, uh, musicians who did really bad things, just, you know, but their their music mm. touched a, a lot of lives, mm. and it's hard, you know, because the because the the allegations against uh, Aaron, that's not me, you know, is he's he's gaslighting. Uh, women. He's uh, he's a misogynist. He... But this the <laughs> what makes that really interesting is this the third season in particular. The core themes involve gaslighting. Yeah, like very explicit. Yeah, very explicit. Mm-hmm. Like the the antagonist, like a whole subplot revolves around the main antagonist directly gaslighting his own children. Right, and it's like horrific. shamelessly. Yeah, and it's it is. And I am shocked that, you know, the last time I saw, you know, parenting that bad in an animated series was, you know, Avatar The Last Airbender, which may be a sign that the man's working through things, but it's, it's, but uh, you don't see that kind of evil that often. And I think it's important because mm. that's like the real evil, you know, it's, yeah. it's it, that's like, uh, I, I would say one of the the surprising things uh spider-man far from home one of the more impactful things about that was the jake gyllenhaal mysterio performance the worst thing about him at least to me that that resonated was the lying and manipulation of peter parker Mm -hmm. yeah you know and then seeing online some people completely miss the boat about like oh no he he wasn't that bad no he was that bad he was an evil you know rancid person so I lean on the side of I would prefer Aaron Aaron not me to uh, keep making the show because I think even obviously he he seems like a terror to work for. There's there is a there is a value that I think he's he's giving that is important for just other people to understand. But yeah, like like if if the if the representation in the show was not as groundbreaking i think it would, it would be a different discussion right. but it but it's the fact that that this is especially if the show can really pick up steam and and get a really big fandom and become influential it does seem to me that he at least needs to address these allegations because i don't yeah. see that he's replied to them yet but uh you know i mean if if because let me i'm just reading about what uh what he's accused of if that stuff is true then like there needs to be a change these allegations really came out in force a few weeks ago if like in six months when they announce a release for season four and there's still been no major addressing of this then i think we would have it would be a different conversation um yeah in terms of like okay do we the consumers need to make a drastic choice 
Okay, well, certainly art is complicated by its creators. That's for that's for sure. So to uh, just to close this out, Aaron, what's been good for you lately? Oh, what's been good for me lately? I saw uh, Train to Busan. I don't know if you you gents have seen that one yet. I've heard yes, of it. I have seen it. Ah, it's uh, it's Young Sang Ho. Uh, I believe he's a he's a Korean director. Yes. The premise of it is there's a divorced guy. Uh, he's distant from his kid um distant from his wife and he gets on a train to busan to to see the mom however this trip is happening while south korea descends into a zombie outbreak and there are zombies on a train which are worse in a lot of ways than snakes on a plane (laughs) Um, just because because the zombies are not that dumb it, it, it's, it's got an interesting take on zombies, but the thing that really kind of sticks with me with this particular film is, I mean, you know, the idea of, you know, we all have to work together or else mm-hmm. we all die. This, it really plays with that idea. The better way to understand it is, do you know, like the prisoner dilemma? The idea behind the prisoner dilemma is, you know, you and someone else are in a prison and you're given a matrix of options. So you can choose... Uh, to throw your buddy under the bus, or you can choose to not throw your buddy under the bus. And uh, your buddy has the exact same choices. Now, if you choose to throw your buddy under the bus, and he chooses not to throw you under the bus, uh, you uh, you don't go to jail, but he goes to jail for a long time. If you guys both choose to throw each other under the bus, both go to jail for not as long amount of time, but a decently long amount of time. And if you guys both choose to not throw each other under the bus, then you both go to jail, but for a short time. What's interesting about the film is it really shows you how dangerous it is to just think only about yourself, right? Because if you, because in the prisoner dilemma, if you throw the guy under the bus and they don't throw you under the bus, you're scot free. You're good. You don't go to jail at all. But here it yeah. shows how you make that decision enough times. You make everything worse for everyone. Where the where the characters have the most success is when they both when they all choose to stick together. That's when their losses are least. But you only need one guy choosing to put himself above everyone else to negate that. So I thought that was a very intelligent, you know, observation that the director decided to base an entire movie on. That's what I saw. That's what's that's what stuck with me. Yeah, I I really enjoyed that film when I saw it. I guess a few years ago now. Like, first of all, it's just it's so much fun. It is. Like, it's really like thrilling and suspenseful, and like all the things you'd want to see, you know, in a movie of that type while having this like social commentary which doesn't feel like it's like shoving it down your throat as much as just kind of like presenting it and like it all making sense in the context of the film and what you said kind of about like that the difference between only helping yourself versus working with other people that's definitely a huge theme what i like about the film is it shows that even like it acknowledges that sometimes even if you're doing things for other people, you may have to make sacrifices. Like key characters who do make that choice, they do end up paying the price with their lives. But the film still makes an argument that that's worth it, that there's still there's something worthwhile to that. And it ends up benefiting other people, um, which is, you know, 
a little more nuanced than just presenting like, oh, if we just stick together, then we'll all be okay. Right. It at least acknowledges that like, yes, there is an inherent risk to putting yourself to in a situation where you're helping others, but also possibly, you know, uh, at risk to yourself. Uh, so it's like that, that I thought was really fascinating and makes the ending like, like very, like very heartbreaking, but also like, you know, kind of gives you more faith in the human race than maybe it even deserves. <laughs> <laughs> I really like this. I saw on Letterboxd, Cindy Walker, she said, you know, when you realize like this, this is the movie that World War Z should have been. <laughs> and I was like, that's really good. Cause like, this is like, that is what you want to see in a zombie movie. It doesn't matter what country it's from. We're going to talk about The Irishman now. And uh, yeah, this is, uh, I, I know this is a film that I was certainly intrigued about. I remember saying when we talked about in our fall movie preview that I wasn't like as excited about it as maybe some other films this year. So I guess I, I just wanted to start, um, I guess we could start kind of with like general takes on the film. Um, so let's start with, uh, let's start with our guests. Let's start with you, Aaron. Uh, first, I am glad I saw it over two days. <laughs> uh, I did. So I, I wound up seeing it in about hour, 40 minute segments, um, which actually worked out. There's somewhere at the hour 40 mark where you can stop. And it almost makes sense. So it is long. It's one of those films that I wish that I liked more than I did. Interesting. Yeah, I, I enjoyed thematically. I really approve of, of its theme. Uh, it's definitely spot on. And I think that it's done pretty effectively. It's a long, it's a very long movie, but I actually think that the length is intimately tied in with the theme. There's a lot of choices that are not made that could have been made. And you get to see the end result. You know, a life of pathetic, self-wallowing garbage leads to an end that's petty, self-wallowing, and pathetic. That's uh, a spoiler so I, alert. This is not a feel-good movie. That's a spoiler. <laughs> this is not feel-good. Yes. You will feel bad. We should put up the spoiler warning for this. This movie is on... Uh, Netflix currently, but yeah, we are, we probably will get into some spoiler yeah. alert. Uh, Oscar says a movie about gangsters goes to some dark places. It does, but <laughs> Who'd have thunk and it? the biggest spoiler of all, at least for this, is Scorsese at no point makes this fun for anyone, which is a bold artistic choice to take the fun out of a gangster. Movie. It is, yeah, like anyone thinking, oh, this is this will be like <clears throat> this will be like another Goodfellas. Nope, no, another no. Wolf of Wall Street. Nope. And the first the first sign that you should know that's the case is Joe Pesci is really pretty close to the voice of reason. So close <laughs> and yet so far. He's, hmm. Yes, yes, we'll he, talk about he, Joe I Pesci, would have, I'm sure. He acts like a voice of reason. He he certainly believes that he is the voice. Yeah, he absolutely. believes he is the ultimate voice of reason. He does. Which he is does. still a and big departure for Joe Pesci. <laughs> it is. No, I mean yes. it's, it's this isn't the Joe Pesci that you're all familiar with. It's a I mean he's still wrong but it's 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 he's the he's the calm wrong yeah he's he's still a gangster yeah he's the he's just much more measured than his typical and i feel like scorsese and pesci are very conscious of that yeah in this and al pacino 
does a great turn as uh, Jimmy Hoffa. But once again, it's super long. It is depressing. <laughs> it is that. And uh, you will not feel good by the end of it. So, uh, How about you, Noah? Your thoughts? This is the type of film that I kind of miss. I wish this sort of film... This is this felt like a throwback to some of the older historical epics that we used to get, you know, like like really old hmm. school stuff like Lawrence of Arabia or like Dr. Zhivago or, or at least in, in terms of stylism, also not unlike movies like Fiddler on the Roof or, or Gone with the Wind, where it's looking at a particular place in time but like sitting there and marinating in it. So the length of time serves to just bring you in to the time and place that the movie is focusing on. And it also means that the movie does not rush. It does not rush to get anywhere. It is incredibly methodical and, and thorough in just bringing you into what did it feel like? What did it look like? What did it sound like to live in these times? And that is a quality that I think is is underappreciated it doesn't work for every type of movie like not every kind of movie should be three plus hours but when it benefits the effect that the movie is trying to go for i'm in favor of it and i like that about this film i like the fact that the film was not rushed i like the i like that it was it's very rich in historical details um uh, especially on the margins so anyone watching this who knows what to listen for who knows you know the the buzzwords there's just a lot in this movie that soaks it in the time period. So just as a historian, as someone who loves movies and is a historian, I found that I, I really, really appreciated that. And I do think that in this case, it serves and enhances the movie to so to, to sink itself like that into the times. The short version of my thoughts are that, that on the whole, the length didn't bother me at all. And I really, really like the movie. I don't know if it would crack my top five, but I do I, I do think it's one of the best movies that I've seen this year. I don't know if I would rank this among my favorite movies that Martin Scorsese has made, but I do appreciate it as like as sort of a summation of one of the types of movies that he has specialized so much in making throughout his career and in one of the types of roles is that Al Pacino and Robert De Niro especially have like built their legacies on providing us with. There's a lot of subtext and a lot of meta commentary in both the film in its them in its thematics and in how it's shot that reflect back on Al Pacino's past filmography, on Robert De Niro's past filmography, on Martin Scorsese's own films, and of course on pretty much every other major gangster movie ever made. Most notably obviously um coppola's godfather trilogy so there's there's a lot of real history in the movie and there's a lot of film history built into the way the film was made that i found very very uh engaging to watch this is a film that i've now seen twice i saw it once with our fellow host alex as well as recurring guest host uh matt who we've had on the podcast and i saw this in new york where it premiered and then I saw it again on Netflix because uh, it's been on Netflix the last few days. And the first time I saw this, I was kind of just overwhelmed. Uh, three and a half hours in one sitting is a lot to take in, uh, no matter what you're watching. But especially in this film, I felt like there were a lot of things where I was like, OK, yeah, I've seen this in Scorsese films before. Uh, yeah, I can kind of see what where the scene is going. Uh, and then when I got to like maybe the last hour even half hour of this film that's really where i was like wait is this what this film has been about because it gets really kind of uh mournful and and even more than mournful i would say even like 
just lonely. Mm. Um, it really starts to acknowledge as more people around him, as this world sort of fades, as Frank Sheeran, the De Niro character, gets older and you know, all the people he worked with have literally died off. He finds himself increasingly alone. And that just really, that really hit me in a way that I wasn't expecting because the whole rest of the movie seemed like it was just so immersed in this, in this world that he was in. Um, and seeing it the second time, what that really did for me was I had that ending in my mind as I was watching the earlier parts mm, of this movie. Yeah, and yeah. that made those play a lot differently than they did on the first time. So I would actually encourage, I don't know, I know some people who saw it the first time and, and came, you know, and, and saw a lot of this, that kind of stuff. Uh, so more power to them, I guess for someone like me, I needed to see it that second time to really, mm. I do think this is maybe my favorite Scorsese movie since the departed. Um, so I liked it really? a whole hell of a lot. I'm mm. really debating mm. if it's not going to be in my top 10, I'd be very surprised if it didn't make my honorable mentions for the year. It's that good. Um, to me, it's, I don't, is it my favorite Scorsese movie? No, I wouldn't say that, but like, I think it's. You know, it maybe would be in the my top ten Scorsese's. Uh, it'd mm. certainly be in the conversation. See, my favorite Scorsese so far, big controversial opinion incoming. My personal favorite Scorsese is Silence, his previous mm. film. Really? For this one? Okay. Wow. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I, I don't know if I could go there with you, but emphasis on personal favorite. There are very personal reasons sure. why that is the case. Have you seen uh, Raging Bull yet? Not yet. It's a good movie. That's that's my there, personal favorite. There's a lot of Scorsese that I've not seen yet, so that that's the mm. other big caveat. No, I'm 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 a Wolf of Wall Street guy myself. Um, also, <laughs> criminally underrated by way too many people. It really, I think it's marvelous. Like yeah. not not one of my personal favorites, but I think it is one of the most profound movies made of the past decade. I adore that film. It's either my favorite or my second favorite Scorsese film. It's really up there mm. for me. Just did a great job of framing the film of the Irishman, especially at the end. That loneliness. Yeah, that just kind of like sets in. It's not one shot. It's not one scene. It's a. It's an extended coda. Right. Oh yeah. That's why I think the length is part of the point because he wants you to sit in that wasted life. Because that that's literally what Frank Sheeran is doing. Yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's really powerful, and I, I do think Scorsese does let you know pretty close to the beginning of the film that that's where it's going, mm -hmm. uh, just because of how he yeah. introduces every character. And I actually laugh. Including Frank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. this guy shot six times in the face. It's like the first thing he's... Of, of, but he does it for everyone. Right? Yeah, it's like and shows, it's like, specifically, yeah. it's not what did they do, what was their position, you know, like like what big thing yeah. did... No, it's just how they died, and point. it was it's universally... Terrible, gruesome, and we can assume probably completely and utterly pointless. Yeah, except Sometimes for the one guy not, who was loved by all. <laughs> like, well liked by all, died of natural causes. <laughs> <laughs> that one feels it was like my favorite joke. one. <laughs> but I, I feel like that's kind of reflective of the whole arbitrariness yeah. of this, right? Like, the bigger point is like, we're all going to die. Well, and yeah. does it does it really matter what you know if that does any of this really matter but like at the same time it's also like there's a sort of randomness to it i mean even the even the fact that one of the characters dies because someone got in from like he did everything right and someone else forgot to relay the message yeah, yeah. i mean right there's a randomness to that yep. right yeah. so it's like it really is this emphasis on like whether you die terribly or not really has no reflection on what you did right or yeah. wrong, even in the context of being a gangster. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> even if you follow the code to the letter. 
it's pretty it's pretty funny. I just like the comment made after that that particular guy is killed. It's like, oh, that was a that was a bad hit. Yeah, a bad hit. Yeah. Well, I think watching it the second time especially, I really got an appreci I really think this is an excellent screenplay. Um, this is, is written by Steven Zalian, who has been a he's a very he's actually a very well regarded screenwriter, sometime director, won an Oscar for Schindler's List, uh, doing the adapted screenplay for that film. But here there's a real like minimalism to a lot of the dialogue in this way that especially Frank, where it's like what he says doesn't really matter. It's just a way to fill silence. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Or a way to keep certain deeper tragedies at bay. I mean, I'm thinking of the phone call that he has with Joe, with Jimmy Hoffa's yeah. wife, when he knows what happened to Jimmy yeah. Hoffa and she doesn't, and he, but she suspects the worst. And he just keep, he's just like on the phone, kind of like hemming and hawing and like, you know, he's, he's probably, yeah, yeah he's, he's, he just can't even complete a sentence. <laughs> you, you know, when all said and done, when, when Robert De Niro finally leaves us and returns to the planet that, decided to grace us with his presence um i would not be surprised to see that scene on a lot of like top robert de niro moments lists yeah that's a really it's good so scene. painful that was one of the best bits of bits of acting the entire movie it's one of the best bits oh. of acting i think i've seen de niro do just in general it's really very powerful and we we should talk about the supporting cast because i think there's some really impressive performances here even beyond I mean par for the course with Scorsese his cast from like from side to side from top to bottom is just yeah it's ridiculous phenomenal it's phenomenal it's just and just let's point out uh, I guess we haven't really gotten to a spoiler section but the muted colors brilliant choice just everything is muted yeah yeah it looks like the compare the look of this to something like Goodfellas, which has mm-hmm. this kind of flashiness to it. Or Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, Wolf of Wall Street is very pretty. Yeah, exactly. And here, you're right. There is this kind of muted color palette. It, and it. I feel like that seeps into a lot of the formal aspects of this of this film, even, yeah. even, in, in the, even in the screenplay, just to get back to that for a second. The word it is repeated a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, it is what it is. It is or what it is. It's where it's where it's gotten. I mean, at one point, even like Pacino's character in retaliation to that says something like, um, they're saying that's it. Bullshit. Like, just yeah. like, there's this way that people talk in this way that's like they don't acknowledge the sort of real, the realness of what they're actually saying. But that's like how this works. The words are a way to <laughs> avoid actually saying what they're thinking or feeling or planning. Yeah. It's it's an act it's an act of act it's 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 an act of deliberate avoidance of the truth. Yeah, and that's that's why I think it's such a good screenplay. It just really leans into that. It's so precise it in is. knowing exactly when to be that vague and and the power of that. Yeah, it's really just really powerfully done. Though I would say that I think there is one moment where there was a bright color in the film but that I think is better for a spoiler discussion. But there's one time where I saw a color. <laughs> I also wanted to ask how you kind of see this film because I know, like Noah, you just mentioned that you like you you like how this film is is leaning into like historical details and stuff like that. Do you see this as kind of witnessing history here? Are we witnessing like a particular perspective? Because I know that's something just. Seeing the way this film is set up, I have to wonder. I think you can go in any number of directions with that. It is very clearly we're being told the story through the perspective of Frank Sheeran. 
And as a lot of people who've written about the actual book that this was based on, because Frank Sheewan was, was a real person, and he did claim to, among other things, being responsible in part for the death of Jimmy Hoffa, people really knowledgeable with the time period and with the history are like, okay, he's either claiming something that we can never prove or disprove definitively, or it's like, it's clearly a bunch of bullcrap. So he is he start, he is an unreliable narrator. It's more the history is a way for the movie to engage with its many complex thoughts on perspective and on how we choose to accept and see certain things and not others. I think I'm with Noah in this one. I, I'm not sure if any of the actual events that Frank Sheeran uh, recalls in the film actually happened that way. Frank Sheeran's character is sad and pathetic. That's what he was his entire life. Well, I was thinking about just with regard to whether he's telling the truth or not and the sort of subjectivity of this story. I love the way that Scorsese uses one of his trademark moves, which is a tracking shot, in this way where we're not necessarily seeing the perspective of a person, but almost like some kind of imagined outside force like uh, that may or may not even exist. Are you referring to the opening shot? Yes, the opening shot. Um, okay. I'm also thinking... Oh, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Um, there's, there's the use of that in the scene where he kills crazy Joe, uh, as he goes in. And that's actually kind of a, I love that scene's really interesting because he builds it up by saying like all this stuff he's going to do, like before he performs the hit. And he just kind of like, <laughs> you could actually see like in that scene, if one was just like, ah, screw it. He just like does the job and gets out of there. <laughs> like, yeah. Like he's supposed to like go into the bathroom and like just prepare himself like I don't know like Godfather style or something I don't yeah. know that bathroom thing like that's definitely one of those like little Godfather nods this movie does not exist in a vacuum it is yeah. building off of a whole specific tradition or subgenre within American sure, film but it's also like a nice kind of like faint that bathroom scene in the Godfather is like one of the most legendary moments in that oh, movie man. I love that that's yeah that's a fantastic scene. Do we want to maybe talk about some of the performances that really that we really liked? I mean, we we sure. talked a little bit about De Niro. I liked De Niro's performance a lot better on the second viewing when it made sense for what the movie was doing. For the first time, I was kind of like, okay, he's like doesn't seem to like be doing a whole lot. I was much more into the performances from Pesci and from Pacino, and even from like uh, and we could get into this, but I feel like the two of the actresses who play his daughters, uh, Anna Paquin who I think has exactly one word that she says in this movie. She has, she says a couple of words. I think it's why. Oh no, she says, why you're right. You you're right. Her. It's why, why didn't you call Joe? Yes, you're right. You're right. I forgot about that. But I also wanted to mention Marin Ireland, who plays his other daughter, who he yep. goes to after he can't talk to Peggy, the Anna Paquin's character. Cause I think that's, that might be my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. I think that might be the second best bit of acting in the movie <laughs> for De Niro. Uh, after the phone call because it's the same kind of thing like he's just, he's incapable of of you know saying what he knows his daughter knows yeah and and he just kind of keeps but like i love like she has like her rebuttals to every one of his kind of rambling things that, which really don't make any sense i mean the whole thing of like oh, i was doing it to protect you and she's like and she's like the way she says from what <laughs> like like it's just it's not just it's not just a rebuttal. It's like just the exasperation. It's like all of the frustration and sadness and anger and betrayal coming to a head in that moment. I just, the way she mm. puts that all into that 
one line or even just just in that whole scene i think by saying like very little but just saying so much with her inflections i think yeah. is really powerful to the point where i'm like that's like a legitimately one of the best performances i've seen it was like only one scene <laughs> so yeah but uh but some of the other performances like i think pacino here he is going for it at every moment he is not <laughs> letting back this is very much in tradition with uh, you know sort of the traditional pacino performances but it really works here i think yeah no he's a delight he's, he wants to pick a fight with everyone and it's really i think one of the sources of constant humor in the film uh, mm. especially uh you know in one of his last scenes when he's arguing with uh his son and with Sally Bugs. I it's just yeah. all of that is just very funny. And then any scene he has with Tony mm. Prove is just yes. hilarious. Like especially I don't know why because you see the delight he takes. Like he knows exactly what Tony Prove wants from him and is like not gonna give it to him. And he's just kind of like delighting in that. Mm. I just I don't know. Just like you you could almost see those scenes going on forever if they didn't have to come to a, eventually to a violent head. <laughs> yeah, he's just a he's a flaming yeah. jerk, but it's really just funny but they're all flaming jerks they're not jerks. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much car, far for the course also the you people exchange i mean that one in particular which is an issue for like 20 minutes of the film like it's not an insignificant amount of time no yeah they really draw it out they really <laughs> they, draw out those those arguments and i think that's what makes them so funny honestly uh, which Maybe it's more of a defense for the length of this film. <laughs> that was the thing. I will say the most surprising thing about the film is how often I laughed. Yeah, it's very funny. I mean, yeah. not that Scorsese hasn't been funny before, but it's really nice to see something can be funny without sacrificing any of its like true impact and oh, tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the humor in yeah. no way lessens how depressing this thing is. Yes, exactly. In that way, it's very impressive. Now, I really liked Bugs a lot. Obviously, the daughters were great, but then Bugs and Pro always make me laugh. And both those guys, again, as I mentioned Boardwalk Empire before, but like yeah. I've those are those are two actors again who I also kind of discovered through that show. I was like, oh, it's nice to see them in movies too. But uh, Stephen Graham, who plays Tony Pro, he played Capone on yeah. uh, Boardwalk Empire. And uh, he's just so, yeah, he's just, I don't know. There's just something about how he thinks he's going to be able to get something out of Jimmy Hoffa that's just really entertaining. The, the costuming is so great. Yeah. Like, and again, how like Hoffa just harps on the details of like, you know, he was late. He wore shorts to a meeting. He wore shorts, shorts to a to meeting. A meeting. No. <laughs> it's like, you're wearing a suit. Do you dress like that in Florida to a meeting? Yes, but it, and it's just more of an indication of how these people def like give me meaning and purpose to their lives through little details like that, yeah. right? And then at the end of the day, mm -hmm. by the end, by the like again, by the last half hour of this film, how meaningless it really all is. The scene of his daughter at at the bank. Yeah, there's just something about how matter of factly she puts up the closed, you know, next teller sign on her at her station and. And De Niro just the way he's... And we don't realize it until that point. We don't realize it either what he's yeah, actually doing. Yeah, why he's doing. there. What, yeah, exactly. Um, it's only at that moment. And we only see her face as she puts the sign yeah. down. Yeah. And she doesn't like she doesn't even give him a chance. It's like one of the most understated punches in the face I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, it's really. And it's like in that moment, you feel so, like at least I felt sorry for him. I did. But at the same time, I didn't blame her for the way yeah. I completely understood the way she felt. But it was like it's really heartbreaking. Yet, like, you know, you've seen up to this point, like the kind of person that he is. 
And yet somehow he still manages to make you a little bit sorry for him. I, was there anything that you guys feel particularly critical about regarding the film? So it's it's something that I feel like works for the movie, and yet it is something that I can't help but think about, especially considering the lack of inclusivity in a lot of Scorsese's movies is just like the way, like there really aren't any real prominent female characters in here. I do feel like they have some of the best scenes, so I'm kind of like conflicted about it. Mm. Also, I do understand that this is meant to be from Frank's perspective, so it does make sense, I feel like, for the film. At the same time, when you consider like how prominent a role Karen Hill has in Goodfellas and how she actually gets her own voiceover, so she becomes like as significant a character in that sense. Mm. That's one of the things that, that jumps out to me a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, like also, I've not seen Taxi Driver yet, but Jodie Foster is considered to be just as important a performance as Robert De Niro's. Oh, she's is. excellent. And uh, Taxi yeah, Driver I, I can confirm. It's a, it's a really great movie. <laughs> like that was my wife's reaction. Like, like she was, she was like, she would watch bits of the film with me, and then she was she, every now and then she'd just be like, oh, "It's such a man film. All these men like <laughs> doing stupid shit that does not matter. None of this matters." And I was like, oh, that's you, like, you're not wrong, yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of the point. Like that, that's the point. It's about, yes, these were worlds created by stupid, thuggish men. So to justify them being stupid and thuggish, that's the point. Like that was the point of Wolf of Wall Street too. It was about people who saw women as literally just sex toys and nothing else. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm with your wife on this one. Um, <laughs> in the in the sense of it is a movie about stupid thuggish men doing stupid thuggish things because they don't want to spend any time reflecting on what they actually want and need. That's not what a man does. Yeah, which is fine. That's a really important thing, but it was a really long walk to uh, to get there. <laughs> and yeah, and though I walk through the val- the shadow of the valley of toxic yeah, masculinity. I will fear. <laughs> I will yeah. fear no evil. No, and that's it was a real long walk to get there and as much as I I like that it isn't fun because no one is going to confuse this with being, you know, pro gangster. That has been an accusation leveled at both Goodfellas and Agreed. the Agreed. And Street. and people erroneously, I think. Yeah, I mean, I know Justin and I have talked about Wolf of Wall Street in particular in the past, like there's no way you make that movie and you think, "Oh yeah, no, this was fun." Right? Like no, no, this was horrible, and it was horrible the entire time. But I mean, don't don't miscount out people's uh, the way that people will find a way to enjoy just about anything. But, but yeah, I yeah, mean, I, the, I tend to agree. It didn't look fun to me, but then again, I'm not <laughs> that kind of person, I guess. You know, I know that people will misconstrue anything, but I find it really hard to imagine the person who will watch this movie be like, oh man, it was really cool how De Niro betrayed his friend of like 20 years and shot him in the back of the head. That was really cool. That was, that's what we were looking for. It, yeah. A lot of it is actually off screen too. Or it at is. least it's not off screen. It's like out, like there's actually like a wall that somewhat shields us from seeing that particular thing, which, yeah. you know, we're of course expecting it to be this huge, you know, production number. And it really mm. isn't. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, the guy's in the corner and he gets his, his, his brain's blown out. Yeah. And the only, the only vibrant yeah. color that I saw in that entire movie was the green casket that Robert mm. De Niro selects. 
the, Ooh, that's the a, only that's vibrant a good color point. is that green gasket. So want to see the thing that matters? I did not notice yeah. that. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. One quick thing I did want to bring up, uh, and I know I hate to sound like a broken record on this podcast about this particular thing, but I will say just as like one other thing that didn't quite work for me, though I won't say it like ruined the film in any way. I just, the de-aging technology, in my opinion, is just still not there yet. I just feel like it's yeah. especially like any scene where he's, where either he or Pesci, like in the earlier parts of the film, like it really, there are certain scenes where it really stands out yeah. and it just kind of took me out for a moment. And then you see them sharing scenes with people who aren't de-aged and it's like, you can, so you can, like, it's so easy to tell, like your yeah. eye just like notices something is wrong. And I was trying to think like, well, is that part of like, is there a way that this uncanny effect is like part of the point of the yeah. movie? And I don't think that was the intention. Maybe someone will have that argument, but I don't think that was the intention. I think it was to actually make them look younger right. <laughs> than no, they I, actually are. I'm glad to agree with your, your perspective on it. I thought the de-aging technology did a good job of bringing them to like their late 50s. But seeing Joe Pesci as 30 years old again due to de-aging technology was that was very jarring to <laughs> Robert De Niro well, in his I think he's meant to be well. older than that probably at that point but yeah he is he is meant to look younger than say his actual age well, <laughs> for solid. sure solid. yeah yeah so I thought it worked to an extent but it, the the early parts especially were very hard for me any closing thoughts I think this is one of those great movies that is clearly not for everyone but I think it's worth at least trying to get through. Yeah, I'd, I'd say this is a movie that I'd recommend if it didn't quite work for you in the first time. Maybe it'll work for you on the second time if that last like half hour did. That's what I would say um, in my experience. Yeah. But I really liked the experience of being able to pause this and kind of watch it in chunks. I know that that wasn't, you know, whatever Scorsese says about his intention with it. Um, for me, it really worked. I think maybe having seen it the first time all the way through, maybe that helped too. But uh, yeah, decide how you want to watch it. Be careful there, Justin. You don't want a Scorsese fanboy popping out of your garbage chute being like, oh, you're killing the theater. Oh, the theater. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd say it's it's a good film. Everyone everyone should see it <laughs> once. But to me, it's, it's, it's a B, B plus kind of film. I don't think I would recommend watching this movie to anyone who has not seen Goodfellas or Casino or any of the Godfather movies, because I feel like you can't separate these this movie from those other those previous ones, because so much is is drawn from them stylistically. I feel like if you've never seen any of the classic American gangster movies, this is not the one that I would break the ice with. Yeah, I actually have a have a bit of an opposite take on that. I actually think this is this is the sort of gangster movie I wish was made like 30 years ago. Oh, okay, interesting. I think it's nice to have something that isn't trying mm. to make it look fun. And mm. there there's a value to that. And I keep harping on the length mostly because I'm bothered by it, but it's uh <laughs> No, but there there's something to be said for that. I that was a, you know, it's it's really nice to see a, a film that really takes seriously how isolating that kind of life is. The cost of that. Yeah. I liked how that was sprung, and I, I do feel like that second time for me is where I could really feel it. So, yeah, that's where I am at. 
All right. I think we're going to move into our last segment, which is uh, kind of using the jumping off point of Scorsese's opinion on Marvel movies, which has really dominated the uh, at least entertainment news headlines. I don't know if you guys want to say a little bit about that before we get into our bigger discussion. Let's just take a moment, I think, to say. Uh, I think Bob Chipman made this point. Do you think Scorsese actually knows the difference between like Marvel and DC films? Um, not not saying he's stupid. I'm just saying he's an old man. So is Marvel just a shorthand shorthand for superhero movies in general, or like sci-fi superhero movies? Or I think that's not unlikely. Yeah, because also Marvel has been the example of how to do superhero movies super 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 profitably they've been certainly the most financially successful and probably and most just in general most popular and, and if that's the case if scorsese just uses marvel as a shorthand for comic book slash superhero movies in general he's by no means alone because i think that's no, how I, the majority of people use he, the word like, marvel I, no i would i would that's that's sort of what i'm getting at there i think it's because so so to the dc fanboys who are out there I'm pretty sure he's not closetly saying Suicide Squad is a movie. <laughs> yeah. That would be... I mean, in his... What a twist! The, <laughs> the op-ed that he wrote seems to... Like, he does mention Marvel movies specifically, but other other points where he talks about superhero movies, and it kind of seems like he's talking in general about this idea of, like, of like studio-driven sort of uh, cinematic universe set mm. <laughs> superhero films. But he's also, and he, and he, some people have pointed this out, and I think he kind of points it out, he's also, I think, not just criticizing Marvel movies, but also the system. Right. Like, he's, he's lamenting a time in which, really, in which... Because let's, let's say also, like, Star Wars is just as, you know, just as popular as, you know or at least is in the same conversation with, with the Marvel movies. Um, but I think he's lamenting the loss of mid-level, you know, mid-budget kinds of movies that you could see at your theater mm -hmm. and the way that theaters are being taken up, take, taken up by a lot of these. And there's this sort of argument there about like the chicken or the egg. Are audiences driving this or are the studios driving it by thinking that the audiences want just this and not the mid-level stuff? I honestly have kind of stayed away from it just because I just felt like I already, I kind of know what I think about Marvel movies. And like, even though it's Martin Scorsese, I don't know if I, I don't care enough about like what he thinks of Marvel movies. Like it doesn't mean I'm not a fan of his movies. It just means like, if I'm going to read criticism of something, I'm going to read criticism. And I just don't know if where he's coming from is necessarily the same place. A place of constructive criticism. Yeah, it just it seemed so dismissive. I guess is my is my was my problem, and that's why I kind of haven't real. I've read a few things. I did read his op ed, but I haven't really like followed this whole thing. There are more important things going on in the world. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, people are di dying in our own country, but anyway, the um, planet is dying. <laughs> like, let's maybe transition then into this bigger question, because. Uh, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about filmmakers and I think especially filmmakers that we like respect or even love here. And we've seen enough of their work to think that maybe 
um, their opinion would be significant because we see what they're able to accomplish. But is that necessarily all the case? Always the case? I guess that's that's why. I, I so I guess as we discuss this, I don't think there's going to be a sort of one way or the other answer, unless you know, unless I'm wrong, <laughs> unless you guys that you know really feel strongly one way or the other. I just, I think it's a very valid question to ask. Like, like at what point, what opinions from other people? do you take more into account than others? Because I think both extremes of, you know, letting yourself be swayed by, you know, whatever opinion you happen to last hear, that extreme, and then the other extreme of absolutely refusing to contemplate other opinions and perspectives at all times are just, are both fundamentally unhealthy. So you, you have to differentiate between what are the opinions that I think are offering something constructive even if I disagree with it, and what are the ones that are just being trollish or dismissive? Yeah, I think when it comes to artists criticizing other artists, it's always a, a tricky proposition because people see the world differently. And, you know, obviously we're talking more generally than just the Scorsese versus Marvel thing, obviously. Like, have you, you know, have sure. either of you guys ever had an example of an artist commenting author, wh whether it was in the same field uh, or in another... Um, field entirely offering commentary or critique of something that you guys felt was well-founded and that actually convinced you guys to to revisit or reconsider your opinion on something i i actually would honestly say uh that has only happened to me once it was with uh when hayao miyazaki was criticizing different anime it, it became a meme of like anime was a mistake but when you like, oh, you mean him him criticizing like the the rest of the Japanese film, uh, right? The, the rest the rest of the Japanese anime industry. Exactly. Yeah, mm. I, and I think because because at the time when he said that it was during like a lull in the industry, like there were a bunch of good shows had ended, and it was just in a in a rut for like four or five years when when mm -hmm. he when he made these comments, and it was kind of garbagey. And, you know, sometime after that, maybe another two or three years after, you know, he said that is when you started seeing a little bit of a turnaround in the in the quality of what was coming out. So I, I think that it, it really does depend on the criticism, like just mm. superhero movies are lame. That's not constructive, like, like on the opinion itself. You're yeah. But if it's if it's mm. if it's saying something, it yeah, it does depend on the opinion. But if the opinion is pointing out that, hey, I think storytelling is getting lazier and this is why you know that could be a positive thing you know for other people to be like all right well maybe we need to step up our game maybe we can't rely on the old mm -hmm. tropes right but that's different like saying your you know storytelling has gotten too predictable is different from saying uh you guys are just making garbage so i think an example which i know um i think alex was the one who uh who brought it to my attention um was boots riley who is a uh, musician uh he's a music producer he's also and he's also a writer and director uh film director he of course did sorry to bother you from last year which uh <laughs> coincidentally is also a film that i saw twice and that i <laughs> liked a lot more in the second view um but it's a uh, very different a animal from the irishman though oh yes yes uh and and thank gosh for it but he did a he did a piece where he talked about uh spike lee's black klansman oh and 
So what I liked about what no. I like but reading his thoughts on that movie, like a lot of a lot of his criticism was centered on historical details that the film either glossed over or didn't quite like maybe painted with too broad a brush mm-hmm. um, and didn't really delve into the nuances or some of the complications of what was going on in the in the department or about Ron Stallworth himself. So what I liked about that criticism, for one thing, it was nuanced. It was well-researched. It was like, it was an interesting opinion in and of itself, regardless of the fact that I had, you know, that I had a newfound respect Mm -hmm. for, for Boots Riley as, as a filmmaker, but it also like kind of talked about like in doing that historical criticism, it brought to light certain things that I think would have made the movie more interesting or more nuanced in just as a film. Um, Now, but at the same time, he also said, even in the course of it, he said, he was a, like that he was a fan of the film, like that he respected so much about the filmmaking and about like the visual imagery of it. Like he talked about specific scenes. So it was a much more nuanced uh, piece than just being about, oh, the Black Klansman, the movie that everybody likes. Like, no, here's why you're wrong. You know, like it was it was a much more nuanced piece that acknowledged the artistry that went into it and had several, I think, legitimate criticisms of the way that certain things were portrayed and about mm. how it played with history and that sort of thing. That to me was an interesting opinion on its own. But I will say that just the fact that it was Boots Riley doing it was probably what made me read the article as opposed to some random critic that I had never heard of. Maybe I would have read that too, but that was almost like this extra thing to get me to mm-hmm. read it and mm-hmm. and take those arguments yeah. into account. So that to me is when it really works. What about an opposite example of something that you guys initially did not like, but then an artist that you respect plugged it or supported it or said, Hey, I think it's actually pretty good that you got that Mm. then got you guys to revisit the thing you did not like and then thought better of it. I'll say for me, it's uh, raising Arizona, the Coen brothers movie, which I now Uh love wholeheartedly. Um, Really? And didn't like the first time I saw it. It just, for some reason, the humor wasn't working for me. And then (laughs) I read a thing um, from Edgar Wright who it's like one of his favorite movies. And he talked about it oh, being wow. this like, just like one of the best, like pure comedies that he had seen. And I saw it and I was like, well, let me give this, okay, let me give this another, another chance. And he's again, another filmmaker that I have a ton of respect for. He kind of gave me that push to see it. And when I saw mm. it, I don't know if any of the stuff he said resonated with me. It's just like getting the chance to see it again. Cause I saw all the stuff in it about like families and responsibility and a life of crime that's like all playing through this comedy. And that was like what really made me love it. And I don't know. There's just, there was something about, I'm certainly, certainly something about seeing the Coen brothers a second time, which I would also recommend Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I do feel like they tend to, they tend to improve uh, with age. I think, I think that's the case for every single movie of theirs. Yeah. Like pretty much without exception. That's one where like I found out he was a fan of it and I'd been like, okay, this, this, this will get me to revisit it. And cause I was doing a, at the time I was doing, I was making sure that I'd seen all the Coen brothers movies and I had seen that one already, but I think reading that article is what made me revisit mm. it. And I'm so glad I, I did because now it's like mm. one of my, you know, it's just one of my favorite comedies. Okay. For, for, yeah. For, <laughs> for me, that happens most often with films where I'll, I'll either not like a film or think it's just okay 
But eventually, either right afterwards or sometime later, I'll come across a different take that will actually like improve the film in my mind because I'll get to see more of the artistry that I was not able to appreciate at first. So like for, mm. for me, it overwhelmingly happens more in a positive direction where someone okay. else like plugging for something, be it music or a movie or a book or whatever, will raise my estimation of it um, as opposed to like really tearing something down for me that I loved or thought I liked. I, I tend to agree with Noah on that. If something influences me, it tends to be in a more positive direction. Uh, the example I have of that, uh, ironically, maybe, is is Fight Club. When I first saw mm. Fight Club, I didn't like it. Yeah, that's I didn't. Yeah, I'm the same I, way. Yeah, I was. I was. <laughs> I was also much younger, so mm-hmm. I still wasn't there with the complex symbolism. So, you know, the first time I read, hey, Fight Club isn't actually about this being in any way positive. Oh, well, that's... now now it's obvious. See that fight fight club is probably a prime example of me like needing to revisit it. Cause I've only seen yeah. it the one time and I hated it. But since then, like, just like you, I've, I've seen, I've seen and read a lot of those exact takes about it. Like, well, no, it's, it's actually like a, a takedown of its, its own subject matter. Yeah. And, and when you watch it the second time, that's very clearly what it is. Um, yeah. And I was, I was a complete, like cinematically, I was a total neophyte at the time. Like I was not yet in a place where I was thinking critically about film yeah. So I was not in a position where I could have appreciated that film in that way. Yeah. I'd, I'd highly recommend it because I, I think it's pretty excellent. Mm. And especially with what's – I think that film predicted uh, certain – how should I say this? Certain corners of the internet, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that. It's a really fascinating film to watch today. That's all. That's what I'll say. Oh, kind of like um, how the social network got backlash for being too negative about Mark Zuckerberg, but it turns out it was right <laughs> the whole time. I did want to just say that you know we we've talked about some of the, like positive examples of filmmakers' critiques. Of course, the I do think there are, there are times where you have to look at certain certain opinions with a little bit of a more critical mm-hmm. eye. <laughs> mm. Another big, I think another big example of this sort of conflict, this was an old one back, might have been the late 90s or early 2000s. Roger Ebert, who, you know, is a super incredible film, not just a great film critic, just a great writer, um, super smart guy, and actually like, actually like a a good human being, wrote an article saying that, or an op-ed saying that video games uh, cannot be considered art. Yep. And mm. and later on went back and doubled down on that argument. Now, if you if you read the stuff that he wrote, there is a logic there. Like you can like he's he's not it's not a oh video games are not art because I think they're stupid. It's like he lays out a, a clear rationale for why he thinks that. The rationale is wrong. <laughs> but uh that that for me is like that's the big example that I think of when I try to think of a comparison for this whole like you know, people saying, oh, well, if anyone has the right to criticize Marvel movies, it's Martin Scorsese, you know, mm. like no matter how many good books or good music or good movies you've made, like you don't become the god of that medium or of creativity. Yeah. And there's I feel like there's a difference between criticizing something and saying something isn't cinema. <laughs> that's where I'm like, huh, that's just too extreme for me. Yeah, and that that's like, this is a threat to cinema, or this is not what movie making is. 
And Roger Ebert's yeah. argument about video games was like, well, okay, it's storytelling, but it's not art in the sense that a film yeah. is. I do think negative like filmmakers bashing other filmmakers. I I would say on the whole, maybe I maybe you know, maybe I just haven't been reading the right things, but I would say on the whole is like fairly rare. And I think you could, you know, I think it makes sense because you wouldn't want to, you know, why burn bridges if you don't, you know, doesn't make sense to alienate people if you don't have to. Well, I, I think in terms of like like them doing that sort of critiques, like I don't think the movies that these people make are very good. There are personality clashes all the time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Are people like, no, that guy's an asshole. Don't work for him. Yeah. And I mean, the funniest things about all these, you know, like these criticisms is there tends to be at some point one of them works for the other one. They all have to walk back the criticism they said, you know, like 20 years ago. So when Martin Scorsese he inevitably does, I don't know, Squirrel Squirrel Girl, the movie, it'll just, <laughs> uh, we will get, a, we will all have a good chuckle. I really want to see him do Squirrel Girl. Guys, Martin Scorsese directing a Marvel movie starring Daniel Day-Lewis. As Squirrel Girl. Let's what do, do we it. think? All right, Daniel Day-Lewis is Squirrel Girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch it. Um and that will be the first Marvel movie to win an acting Oscar. Played one of the legendary figures of American literature, Newland Archer. He played one of history's worst monsters in William the Butcher Cutting, and he also played Squirrel Girl. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a worthy trajectory. Following up his role of Mr. Woodcock. <laughs> I mean, like one last thing that I wanted to say about this this subject was just uh, I I feel like what's so what's interesting about filmmakers' opinions, whether they're positive or negative, is that you're usually getting an opinion that's very informed by their tastes in what they create as well as what they watch. Yeah. So you can see opinions sometimes that are like very much geared toward that. Um, one of my favorite things every year is reading uh, IndieWire does a thing where they ask filmmakers to submit their favorite films. And so you get you, but actually like, so, so I guess maybe, I, maybe I'm backtracking what I just said a minute ago a little bit, but like one of the fascinating things to me about that is you see these filmmakers who make like very specific kinds of films gushing about something that they would probably never make. That would not be the subject matter that they would even like seem to be interested in. And then you hear, Oh wow. Like they have a really expansive, they have, they seem to really have an interesting take on this particular subject or this particular film. That seems to be pretty common, though. Yeah, it's it's really it. I would highly recommend anyone read it. Um, in some cases, it's like introducing me to filmmakers before I've seen their films. Like I've talked before about like Pedro Almodovar talking about a lot of films that I loved from like I was like a few years ago now. And just being like, wow, like this guy seems to be really open minded. Like if I like hopefully when I see Pain and Glory, which is probably going to be the first film of his that I see, you know, I'll see that reflected in the filmmaking as well. But you, you never know. So that's a kind of a crapshoot. I think you have to kind of decide you have to decide just in general, like the kinds of opinions that you're going to give credence. And uh, and I don't think it's any different for for filmmakers. <laughs> I think we'll wrap up the discussion there. Um, but let's talk about where we can find everybody these days. So let's start with you, Noah. Where can we find you? I do my written film reviews on my blog at francenoir.blogspot.com. I'm hoping to find the time to do an Irishman review and possibly also a review of Frozen 2. Awesome. I look forward to that. And how about you, Aaron? Can we find your work anywhere? Uh, not, not yet. Uh, due to 
certain other commitments I have, I have actually been foreclosed from doing certain things. So oh. it'll, yeah, that's the that's the downside of my. You can find life. his work on the on the stamp of the law. You can find my work on the stamp of the law. Um, <laughs> but hopefully, when I'm done with this, there might be some things coming out. Okay. Good. Well, yeah, be sure to let us know yeah. and we'll we'll plug it on the podcast. You can find me at thecinemaverick.com as well as on Letterboxd at the Cinemaverick. At this point, I have published my favorite performances of 2018 uh, on my website, which I am very proud of. And I will soon have my top 10 films of 2018, which I have work, been working on in earnest. Oh my and, God. Uh, we'll have, it's we'll coming. have completed... Before, which is earlier than last year, so I'm I'm <laughs> glad for that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can find my work there. You can find Alex at Media Thinkings on Twitter and uh, on Letterboxd. And you can follow our show at Cinema Joe's. That's our Twitter handle. You can also find us on Instagram at Cinema Joe's with the visual companions that Alex uh, puts a lot of work into and incorporating uh, usually very disparate uh, film universes and, and kind of putting them together in a very entertaining tableau. His, com his combinations have gotten pretty has got, have gotten pretty fantastic. Past yeah, couple months. Uh, I love it, um, especially when like it looks like they're sort of interacting with each other. That's the best. That's what the internet was made for. <laughs> and you can also find our podcast on any number of podcast services, iTunes, Podbean, uh, and pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. We're pretty much everywhere. We want to thank all our listeners, uh, all our, our many subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we encourage you to let other people know about our show. For the Cinema Joes, this is Justin signing off. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.